you pray with me as we begin our study of God's Word? Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy this morning as we The following to sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg. Your glory in downtown and Fredericksburg. Value and the beauty of your son Jesus and his gospel. We pray, God, now as we turn our attention to the words of your prophet Jeremiah that you have preserved for our study and our education and our benefit this morning, that our hearts would be so stirred in love and affection for you that we would see Christ in these pages, that our goal in life would be to give praise and honor and glory to you because of what we hear and read in your word. Help us to be corrected by your word, instructed encouraged and edified. We pray, God, for our hearts and our minds now to engage by your Spirit with the Word so that we are changed and transformed. We may pray for those who are not here because of sickness or work or whose lives otherwise have taken them away. We pray that for our members they would be encouraged and though not present with us here, that they would so be in spirit. That those who have neglected the, the duty of gathering, God, that they would be corrected and rebuked gently by your spirit and called back into fellowship with you and the church. And we pray, God, above all, that those who are here, both the, the smallest ears up to the oldest, who do not know the gospel and do not know Christ savingly, that they too would come to hear the truth of your word, be convicted of their sins, repent of them, and cast themselves upon your mercy and grace for the forgiveness of those sins in Jesus Christ. We pray this as always in his name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 8. We'll study from verse 4 to the end of chapter 9. And because it's a bit of a longer section, we won't read every verse, but make our way through these two chapters together as we go. So you'd be wise to have your Bible open in front of you the entire time and glance down as I reference those verses and as we read those verses together. If your Bible is opened and only then closed after the reading, you won't be helped. In this church, an open Bible means an open heart. And so please keep your Bibles open together. Jeremiah chapter 8 and chapter 9 is the beginning of a new section within the book of Jeremiah where he is now beginning to preach these sermons in a unique and powerful way that God had sent him to Judah, the southern tribe of Israel, which was left, the only one left spared by the captivity of the Assyrians to try to get them to repent and turn from their wicked ways because the Babylonians were increasing in power from the north and were on their way as an exercise and extension of God's judgment to overtake them. And Jeremiah is a prophet, which means he comes to speak for the Lord. His word is to be taken as God's word. And he says that they must repent of their sins and return to the Lord, lest judgment come upon them. That's been the theme of the book so far, and it will be the theme of the book and the rest of our study. Judgment, wrath, 
impending doom with forgiveness, hope, restoration. That's the cycle. And any good sermon will have those themes as well. The ignition, the acknowledgement and recognition of sin and God's wrath against unrighteousness. The need, the demand to repent of those sins and the offer of hope and forgiveness in Christ. Jeremiah preaches that sermon over and over again in, in chapter 8 and chapter 9. We have a collection of those sermons brought together. And this is more like a dialogue between Jeremiah and God, God and Judah, Judah and Jeremiah. But above all of this, these two chapters for us this morning is a lament of the fallen character of man's relationship with God. What we see pictured here in our text is Jeremiah lamenting that Judah has so fallen out of favor with God that God, the covenant father of his people, now are coming against him, against them in wrath and in judgment, not in grace. And so Jeremiah here is called often the weeping prophet for the tears he sheds on behalf of his own people because of their fallen relationship with God. And so for our work this morning, we want to look and study this lament so that we can identify why man's relationship with God is often fraught with failure, with strife. Now you may be here this morning and have a perfect relationship with God. You may walk with the Lord as Enoch did. And at any moment, you will be taken up in a whirlwind. And we would be so blessed to see it. But if you're like me, then your walk, as we tend to put it colloquially, with the Lord, is usually more like a stumble. It's more like a limping with the Lord. You know what's right. You have His Word. You have good friends and counsel. You've read your Bible. You hear good sermons. You get good input. But sometimes your output doesn't match what you've heard, what you know. Your walk with the Lord looks a lot like, unfortunately, Judah's stumbling and walking with the Lord. Now, of course, all of us are fallen. The first chapters of the Bible teach us this, that there is no man or woman or child that is immune from the fallen nature of sin and the corruption of our hearts before God. But this was not always the case, remember. Adam and Eve were created by God and placed in the garden, and they were perfect, absolutely morally righteous. They had no sin, and they were able to walk with God unashamed, uncovered, in perfect harmony. Just as God exists in perfect unity among Himself in the three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, so He created man to be in perfect relationship with Him. And if you know Genesis chapter 3, then you know that that relationship was fractured by man's sin and transgression. And because of sin, the corruption of man's heart now rules over all of our relationships, not just with God, which was broken, but now with each other. The community which God intended for man to build, the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers and worshipers of God now is unable to happen. And even 
the relationship between man and woman. For the desire of the woman would be to rule over her husband. Even our relationship with the very earth, with creation itself, is now corrupted by the fall. Part of the curse on Adam was that he would work and toil in the ground only to produce thorns and thistles. He would toil by the sweat of his brow, very little to show for it. The ground itself is cursed. And the woman, of course, is cursed with pain and childbearing. So the very nature, the biology, the creation itself, all of our relationships are fallen, corrupted by sin. And this is the world we live in. But it wasn't the world that God designed. And so what God has done since the very beginning has sent messengers, has sent His Word, first directly through His leaders, the patriarchs, men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, men like Noah, men like Moses, men like David, and through prophets like Jeremiah and Samuel and Isaiah. And His Word would come to His people to help them to teach them and to encourage them that God's design, though marred by sin, was not completely destroyed by it. That a sovereign and good God is doing what He has always said He would do. And His creation will fulfill all of the promises that He has called it to fulfill. Namely, the earth will be full of worshipers. He will redeem His people from sin. The very promise that he gives to Adam and to Eve is that the seed of the serpent will be crushed by the heel of the seed of the woman. That's the promise, the first gospel, that we see in the first chapters of the Bible that ring true throughout every other page to the very end. And so Jeremiah is preaching to a corrupt people who once walked with God, who had God's word, much like Adam and Eve did in the garden, and yet rejected God's word, and now find themselves on the precipice of danger and destruction. And he laments. He's concerned for his people. There's a godly worry and a sorrow for his people. God himself shares this desire for his people to be restored. So the correction is that these people would understand how dangerously and precariously they are before the Lord's judgment and that they would begin to turn and repent. Now he doesn't call them to perfection. He doesn't call them to a standard impossible for them to meet. He calls them to the very thing that only they have the power to do. Repent of their sin turn from their foolishness and their idolatry, commit themselves to the Lord, submit themselves to His Word, and then be restored to God's fellowship. Therefore, God can continue to work and fulfill all the promises that He gave to them and their fathers. The land, the promises, the glory would be theirs. But the problem, of course, is they were stiff-necked, as we read this morning. They were rebellious and hostile. Their hearts had become hard and they had no desire to hear what Jeremiah had to say. They did not care what God's word really meant and so they persisted in their ways. And God, as we read and we will read again, though long-suffering, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, He is not 
and will not allow sin, evil, and idolatry to remain unpunished forever. It would be, of course, unjust for him to not punish even his own children for their idolatry. So God, after being patient for many years, after sending many prophets and people to go speak and preach and to call, finally says that judgment will come. Their eyes were blinded by their sin. They could not see. It was right in front of their face. The lesson for us this morning as we begin to look at the text then is this. That if we want to see and know God rightly in order that we might avoid the same sort of stiff-necked foolishness and blindness that Judah portrays, then we must seek God in His Word. Seeing and knowing God rightly, truly, is the height of wisdom and the foundation of our happiness. We can be no wiser than when we seek God in His Word and no happier than when we build our lives upon the truth of that Word. It must be for us the height of wisdom and the foundation of happiness if we are to see and know God truly and rightly. That was what Judah missed. That's what Judah refused. Jeremiah speaks to us today. To see and know God rightly and truly in His Word is the height of wisdom and the foundation of our happiness. Let's look at the lament here. We see five ways ultimately, that man has fallen in his relationship with God. Five fallen characters of man's relationship with God. First, man's mind is unwise. Man's mind is unwise. Look in verse 4 of chapter 8. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I've paid attention and I've listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle doves swallow and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people, they do not know the rules or the decrees of the Lord. How can you say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame, and they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace, were they ashamed when they committed the abomination? 
No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. We can see here a picture of the character of man's fallen relationship with God begins with the darkening and the futility of their own mind toward Him. They have shut up their ears and their mind to the word and the law or the rules of God, it says in verse 7. That they, despite their own biology, despite considering all of creation, which gives praise and glory to God in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies declare its handiwork. They look at this and instead of bowing down to their creator, they turn from them. It says in verse 5, they are in perpetual backsliding or a kind of permanent apostasy. They are holding fast to deceit and they refuse to return. Now this isn't them trying to climb their way back up into God's grace. This isn't a Sisyphus trying to push the stone up the hill over and over again, but he just can't because of some cruel divine punishment. No, in verse 5 it says, they are stuck in their backsliding and apostasy because they have held fast to deceit. They refuse to return. It is much like those traps, I'm told. Our resident pest expert can correct us. They set for raccoons. And they put the bait inside the trap and the raccoons stick their hands in and they grab hold of it. But they don't want to let go of it, and so they pull and they pull, but their hands cannot come out. Well, if they're smart enough, they would let go of their trap and they could pull their hand out. But, like in verse 5 in Judah, they hold fast to the deceit. They are so fixated on the thing that they want so deeply that they refuse to return to the Lord. Their grip on their idolatry is so strong that they are almost beyond salvation. This is a kind of perplexing foolishness, isn't it? This is, this is the height of folly, and it perplexes God. Look in the verse 4, he says, Men fall, and they get back up again. It's in their nature to do so. And if you turn one way and you realize you've gone the right way, it is right and natural, logical even, for you to turn and go the other way. Yet Judah knows that they have gone the wrong way, that they have fallen, and yet they refuse foolishly to turn back. This is a perplexing foolishness. Well, what's the reason for this? Well, as John mentioned this morning, these men and women have become wise in their own eye. They persist in their foolishness thinking that they are wise. Where does the source of wisdom come from? Their source of wisdom comes from the world, but not the word. Their source of wisdom comes from the world, but not the word. It is, in effect, them literally taking an L. Notice what it says. It says that they twist and distort God's word, which is true, into a lie. It goes on to say in verse 8 and verse 9, How can you say that you are wise? 
and that you have the law of the Lord. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The scribes, the teachers, they were to, to rule with the word. They were to teach and educate and to lead. But they have taken God's word and they have twisted it and they have turned it into a lie. God's word, which is true and always right, has been remodeled and reworked into a lie. Well, this tactic is not new or original even to these leaders and scribes. This tactic is old. It is from the very beginning. Back in Genesis chapter 3, sin came into the world through this very tactic. The enemy, disguising himself as a serpent, deceived Adam and Eve into believing a lie that they would indeed be like God. And it was much more worthy to be so than in relationship with him. He takes God's word. Did God really say? Is it really true? Are you sure that's what he meant? And turns it into a lie to sow doubt and distrust. And this is what the scribes of Judah have done. In fact, I think this is probably what has angered God the most. It is his very word, his own revelation of himself to his people that ultimately are spurned. In effect, when we twist God's word from true to false, it is not just mishandling an ancient text. It is actually calling God himself a liar. The greatest defense that we can cause to God is not simply our stubbornness and refusal to listen or obey, it is the undoing of His Word, which He has given to us in perfect revelation. And so those who would consider themselves wise are actually foolish to God, who are strong, the sages, the philosophers, all of them are like school children who think they know everything and in reality know very, very little. So Paul will ask in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish what you have thought was wise? God's wisdom is not like the world's, and yet Judah follows after the world's wisdom and not the word's. And so the first character of man's relationship with God is fallen because it is, by definition, unwise. His mind has been darkened and his eyes have been blinded by the rational, logical revelation of God. Not rational or logical in that we can perfectly understand everything as an argument, A plus B equals C, but that everything contrary to God's word is by definition, according to reality, illogical and irrational. The only path to wisdom is according to God's word. Man's mind has become unwise. Secondly, as we continue in chapter 8, the fallen nature and character of man's relationship is God, of God is fallen because man's soul is ultimately unhealthy. Man's mind is wise, but man's soul is unhealthy. Jeremiah and God they use this metaphor of poison, of a disease and a sickness 
verses 13 and 22. It says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed from them. Why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go to the fortified cities and perish there, for the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. There's a sickness there in play. Look at verse 16 and 17. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. That's a nearby town. That's the snorting of the enemy's horses. At the sound of their name of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, and the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. So what's happening? Not only has man's mind become darkened in futility, not only is it unwise now by its very nature, but man's soul is poisoned by the well of unrighteousness and idolatry from which he drinks. He has drunk the poisoned water because he was convinced it was pure. He has kept company with venomous snakes and serpents, that, confident that they would be unharmed. But this again was the height of foolishness. And though, of course, it is said rightly, if you've paid attention, that the Lord was the one who has given them this poisoned water. And that He was the one who sent to them those venomous snakes, the serpents. And though this is true, Jeremiah is simply acknowledging God's sovereignty, but not His culpability here. And God's rightly sending the snakes, or the serpents, and rightly giving the poisoned water, Jeremiah acknowledges his sovereignty, but not his culpability. Meaning God is not guilty here of the sin, though he is ultimately sovereign over the punishment. This is very clearly placed on Judah alone. They have sinned, and now they reap what they sow. So God gives and God sins through a kind of divine sanction, a divine permission and he gives over people to their depraved desires. And he allows them to reap what they sow. We see this happening in the first chapter of Romans. And Paul describes that those who persist in their wickedness to a level deep beyond all that is right and natural, God is said to give them over to their debased mind, to their lusts, their desires, their corruptions. Here he's doing something very similar. Jeremiah says that the, Jew, the, the people of Judah desire destruction, and so God gives to them their desire. Of course, God is still the ultimate cause of their distress because He both sovereignly ordains that it happen and He purposefully employs their distress for His good. Man's soul is poisoned by its sin. Man has drunk deep from the well of sin and idolatry, from the corruption of his heart. Sin is a disease 
which blackens the soul. And it is a disease which is terminal to all who have it. There is no coming back from the disease of sin. There is no remedy that you and I can employ. No worldly tonic or man-made medicine can heal that kind of sickness. In verse 22, he says the same thing. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? The doctors of the land, all the ointments and treatments, the very best and brightest, the, the cutting-edge science of the day, cannot right the wrong of the human heart. Is there a balm or a physician? And yet the health of the daughter of my people are not restored. Friends, be, be weary of any teacher that says that you can heal your soul from sin by anything that is of this world. There is no tonic, no medicine, no cure, no philosophy, no amount of good works, no secret formula, no knowledge that saves you from a fatal disease. When we look to this world for cures for our diseases, which are spiritual and not worldly, we waste our time and our efforts are in vain. Man's mind is unwise, man's soul is unhealthy. Third, the character of man's fallen relationship with God is because man's tongue is untruthful. Man's tongue is untruthful. Jeremiah goes on to lament in verse 1 of chapter 9, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes of fountains of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they all are adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be aware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor has gone about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves with committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord." It is very clear here that in Jeremiah's word, we learn that a lie cannot build, it can only destroy. And Judah has not built up themselves on truth, but have torn down themselves with their lies. A lie cannot build. Falsehoods cannot establish. They can only tear down and destroy. Particularly, we see that lies destroy the ability to know God. Look again in verse 3 of chapter 9. They bend their tongue to, like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has been grown strong in the land. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Their, their, the love, their evil deceit prevents them from knowing the Lord. Look in verse 6. Keeping oppression upon oppression, a deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me declares the Lord. 
The ability to know God, and by know, we don't just mean know facts about God, which we call theology. Knowing God, we mean know Him intimately, as a son or a daughter would know his, their father, that a brother would know another brother, that friends know one another well. You cannot know God if you believe a lie. You cannot know God if you teach a lie. You cannot know God if you seek to establish your life and live by a lie. Lies destroy. They do not build. Not only do they destroy the ability to know God, but they destroy the ability to know each other. Again, in verse 4 and 5, we see the consequence of a life that is given over to lie, to deceit. Everyone is aware of it, beware of your own neighbor. No trust is put in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes around as a slanderer. They deceive his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies, continually wearing themselves out with their sin. Not only do we fail to know God rightly because of falsehood, the believing of the twisting of Scripture, or the outright lie about who God is, but we are unable to truly know and love one another. These two things go hand in hand, the love of God and the love of others. This is why Jesus famously summarizes all the law in these two commandments, to love God and to love others, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as yourself. The Ten Commandments themselves, the very summary of the law are broken into those two tables in which we understand both our allegiance and our love for God and our obligation and our love to others. And yet when we build our lives, our church, our theology, our doctrine, our philosophies, our own way of living, when we destroy ourselves by these lies, we are not able to know God and to love others. So man's tongue becomes unfruitful and our relationship with God and each other are destroyed. The tongue, of course, is a very dangerous and deceitful thing. In James chapter 3, we read something very similar. Famous passage on the tongue, he says, And not many of you should be teachers, brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with straighter strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble, what he says, and what he says is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And if we put bits into our mouths of horses, into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide our whole bodies as well. Look at the ships. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the wind of the pilot directs. So also the tongue of man is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, sustaining the whole body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives, or a grapefruit, grape tree bear figs? 
neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Well, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of his wisdom. We see very clearly here from James, picking up on the same idea that Jeremiah teaches us, is that the tongue is the very thing that often gets us into trouble with God and with each other. He says this because righteous behavior is often predicated by, it's often consistent with our speech. Meaning that yes, you can have a righteous speech without righteous character, but you cannot have a righteous character without righteous speech. Righteous behavior is always predicated by and consistent with our speech. You may say the right thing, but your character may be far from it. Again, to put it more colloquially, you may talk the talk and not walk the walk. James says again that the tongue is this point of entry for the world's greatest evil. It's, it's one of the clearest manifestations of the fallen nature of our relationship with God. Evil speech proves its true nature, James says, as an extension of hell. He says that it is set on fire by hell. The destructiveness of evil speech is derived from the destructiveness of hell. It is as we open up the pits of hell and we let it spew out from us as we teach, as we lead astray, as we speak evil, as we lie, as we harm one another, as we curse. So there's a kind of incompatibility with God's people who are to let no corrupting talk, for instance, in Ephesians 4, come out of your mouths but only that which is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There's an incompatibility with that and with our nature to be untruthful. There's a hypocrisy and an incompatibility with Ephesians 5, that there would be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place among Christians, but instead there should be thanksgiving. It's inconsistent with those who love God and claim to know Him, and yet who do not put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from their mouths. It is inconsistent with the grace that we have received. The tongue directs our actions. So man's tongue is untruthful. Fourth, character of the fallen nature of our relationship with God is that man's living is ungodly. Man's living is ungodly. His life is unrefined. And so look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, because of all of this oppression and deceit, because they refuse to know the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Again, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush. Shall I not punish them for these things, declare the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Man's living before God is ungodly. What we see now is the fruit of this poisonous tree. We see the, the work of the unrepentant desires of men's hearts. A lack of wisdom, a lack of the spiritual health, a lack of the love of truth toward others leads to this sort of ungodly living. Look ahead in verse 9 to chapter, chapter 9 to verse 12. Who is the man who is so wise who can understand this? To whom the 
mouth the Lord has spoken that he may declare it. Why is the land ruined? Why is it laid waste in the wilderness so that no one passes through? Because they have forsaken my law that I set forth before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed after their own hearts, have gone after the Baals as their fathers have taught them. So what happens? Their living is taught and guided by their lack of wisdom and health and love. God's li- man's living is inherently ungodly when we lead in unrighteousness, when we trust lies, when we despise true wisdom, and when we despise God's love as he's commanded us. What happens then is God's judgment on Judah will be a refining judgment meant to produce in them a kind of humility and a kind of repentance that would lead to true godly living. We can see him calling his people to lament. There in verse 17, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. And let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. How we are utterly shamed because we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. He judges them, punishes them, so that they may learn repentance in humility because their living is so ungodly. He says that we have been unashamed in our sin. Let us then be utterly shamed. We have left the land. We have been cast out. Man's living is ungodly. Lastly, The character and nature of man's fallen relationship with God is that man's heart is uncircumcised. There in the end of chapter 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me knows and understands that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Imam, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. This is a really powerful indictment to call God's covenant people who are known by God's relationship and covenant with them, who cut themselves outwardly to mark themselves off for the rest of people. Now before God says there is no difference between them and the other nations for they are uncircumcised in their heart. Whether it's the Egyptians or the Hebrews, it makes no difference before God if their hearts are uncircumcised. Remember, circumcision was this sort of outward sign of the covenant that revealed a belonging to God. It consecrated God's people to Him, to the covenant. But even those who had this outward sign had hearts that were still unresponsive to Him. This is what it means to be uncircumcised in hearts. Hearts who were not willing to submit themselves to God, who were not truly in their heart consecrated to the service of God. And so though they marked themselves outwardly, inwardly they were far from God. This is truly 
why man has fallen from God in his relationship. What does God delight in, he says in verse 24? Love, justice, and righteousness. But Judah has stranded themselves on an island so far from these things because of their sin. Their uncircumcised heart has not allowed them to seek it. Well, given this fallen nature, this unwise and spiritually afflicted nature of mankind, the addicted to lies and the corruption in our conducts, the familiar words but with foreign hearts, given this fallen nature, what hope is there that any one of us will ever escape the same fate as Judah? Might we with Jeremiah lament, is there no balm in Fredericksburg? Is there no physician here? But God is merciful. And His promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 when sin first came, when the serpent first twisted the word of God into a lie, when it was first believed and when first man took his step away from God, we see that God delivers upon His perfect promises and that Christ Himself comes and answers the question for us. Yes, there is a balm to be applied to all those who suffer under the great condemning weight of sin, whose wound has opened them to the condemnation of God. There is a physician who has come to heal the sick. Jesus says in Mark 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 17, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God has sent Jesus to be for us our great physician. He has heard Jeremiah's lament that there is no human cure for the disease of ungodliness and sin, and he has sent his son to be for us that cure. He is our great physician. He heals us. But how? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. That Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen. By his wounds you have been healed. So friends, you and I suffer with the open, open, gaping, festering wound of sin, our soul marred and blackened by death, And Jesus' answer, Jesus' balm, Jesus' healing property is not some special incantation, but by being wounded for us. He becomes the very sin which you and I commit. That which festered on our soul is poured out onto Christ on the cross. He is wounded so that your wound may be healed. Familiar with Isaiah chapter 53, there the prophet writes that surely this servant, this Messiah who would come, Jesus has borne our griefs, carried our sorrow, and yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted as we were. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, friends, Christ, our great physician, heals us 
by becoming for us the very one who is wounded by the fall. It says in Genesis chapter 3 that the heel which crushes the head of the serpent will be bruised. But this is not a fatal wound for Jesus, though he dies on the cross after suffering God's wrath for our sin, is put in a tomb and as we celebrated last week, was risen from the dead. He conquers over death, over sin, over shame, so that those who have faith and trust in that work of Jesus, who heals them as their great physician, may walk in faithfulness. Now you are able to to speak truthfully. Now you are able to fight injustice. Now your eyes and your minds are opened and enlightened to the truth, no longer darkened in, un, un, in futility and, and, and unwisdom, but now to walk in all wisdom, to see Christ as the very wisdom and power of God. Now you're able to love others. Now your soul is no longer blackened by sin, but you have received, that very, received the very balm which heals you. For all those who are in Christ are a new creation. For behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Listen. We'll end with Paul's own words in Romans chapter 8. He says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. No human could make this happen. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set, their mind, set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the fallen condition of the nature of man's relationship with God. But he says, You, however, Christians... You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will be also will give life to your mortal bodies, through His Spirit who dwells in you. Praise be to God. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What does Paul teach us here? That Christ, the great physician, is wounded that our wounds might be bound and healed. He suffers sin and death that our condemnation would be averted. And yet he is risen again from the death that we too might also be raised from the dead. That we too might walk in the life that now Jesus gives to us. And that we can walk faithfully in this life with wisdom and integrity speaking truth and preaching truth because of the Spirit now who dwells in us, obediently submitting ourselves to the Word of God, not as stiff-necked people, though we do stumble, but as those who have been redeemed and healed 
who say to God, we have received the cure in Christ. Wisdom, health, and truth is how we are to know God. It is how our knowledge of God is sustained. And we walk in the wisdom of God in Christ as Christians who have been healed by God in Christ for the glory of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that this truth about the fallen nature of man's relationship with God has humbled us to recognize just how great the magnitude of our sin is before you and just how large the chasm was that we could have never bridged on our own. No amount of good works or righteousness or well-wishing, no, no medicine man or healing could have ever brought us to your presence. Only Christ, your Son, who suffered for our sin, could have ever bridged that gap. Only the great physician, your Son, Jesus, was able to heal us. And he heals us by his wounds. We are thankful, God, for those wounds this morning. We ask, God, that we continue to sing and worship in glad, grateful hearts for the wounding of Christ and our healing because of him. We give so much to you in Jesus' name. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Say